Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Underground Atlanta has gone through many transformations since its origins during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. What became Underground Atlanta's retail concourse was first enjoyed by the public during Prohibition as a place for basement speakeasies, even referenced by blues singer Bessie Smith in Preaching the Blues. After recent years of neglect, Underground Atlanta is transforming yet again, with art at the top of the priority list. Later this hour, we'll hear from creative director Chris Pilcher about restoring vitality to underground and making it the defining piece of a new chapter in downtown Atlanta's story. First, two days of burlesque dancing, a TED Talk-style gay history lesson, and a family-friendly drag story time will be hosted by Atlanta Fringe and Metropolitan Studios this weekend. The two arts organizations came together to celebrate the city's Pride Month with a Queer Days Night. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Metropolitan Studios CEO Rebecca Beasley, digital content producer Amy Ferzogo, and Will Nolan to learn more about the weekend's festivities. Beasley started the conversation with details on the Atlanta Fringe Festival. So the Atlanta Fringe Festival Uh, is a 501c3 organization that's operated by Twinhead Theater. And they run an annual festival where they bring in performers from all over the country to perform, to network, and to connect. I've worked for them as a venue manager in the past. And one of my favorite things kind of about Fringe is how they select the artists that they're going to be showcasing at the festival that year is it's a lottery selection. So for me, that's really kind of the great leveler. You get people of all experiences and kind of skill, and they have the opportunity to work with people that maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity to work with before. 
Yeah, and I can totally testify to the lottery thing because I thought, oh, I've done it twice, so I'm a shoe-in for the next year, and nope, if your number doesn't come up, you don't get chosen. But to your point, I do think that that's one of the special things about the fringe is that, like you said, it's a great leveler, and you have, going from show to show, you have no idea what kind of piece you're going to see because it's not like hand curated like a lot of the fringe festivals are. I've also, I've participated in a number of different fringes and nothing beats the Atlanta team in terms of the way that they treat their artists, the split of the box office, and then just the kindness of the whole team that's involved. Like it's, they're really, really passionate about it. So Rebecca, can you tell me about the partnership between Metropolitan Studios and the Atlanta Fringe? How did that come about? I was a venue manager for the Atlanta Fringe Festival right near the beginning of their inception. And I did that for two or three years before I opened Metropolitan Studios with my business partners. Uh, We've been open for about five years and we just recently had a stage put in our space. Being small arts organizations, you know, we kind of had to do what we could do to perform uh, because a lot of places they charge a lot more than we have money for. And so I actually had a a call from Diana, one of the uh, folks who runs Fringe. And she was like, hey, can I just come look at your space? We have this show uh, that we want to do with Will, who's coming into town. And I said, fun story. That's also, you know, Atlanta Pride weekend because we don't do Pride in June because it's too hot. (laughs) We had planned to kind of already do a burlesque show. And we had been talking about potentially like an arts panel. And it just kind of grew from there in our conversations with Fringe. They said, you know, we'll bring in Will. I said, we'll bring in the drag folks and the burlesque folks and the fire folks. And we'll just do a whole two days events, you know, celebrating pride. And it's kind of gone from there. They're, they're a delight to work with. Um, I've always enjoyed working with them and, and I'm, I'm really thankful for the partnership now. And now that we're both at a place to kind of work together, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned burlesque, the Metropolitan Studios host, the Atlanta School of Burlesque and the Candy Box Review. That is correct. Yeah. So the Atlanta School of Burlesque actually predates Metropolitan Studios. We've been open in Atlanta for almost eight years. We rented studio space all over the city for many years. And then about five years ago, we had an investor who purchased our building and we've been able to host the Atlanta School of Burlesque classes out of there. But, you know, when you have a really niche art form, it's really difficult to say, yeah, let's just open a school of burlesque. We realized that we needed to have a larger mission than just burlesque. So We created Metropolitan Studios, which is truly a place for artists to come together, congregate, you know, utilize the space. We host everything here from pop-up shops to baby showers to, you know, events. It's really kind of a one-stop place for intimate things for the artistic uh, and entrepreneurial community. And when I think of burlesque, I think of Moulin Rouge and Burlesque the movie. (laughs) For those who are unfamiliar with that type of dancing, can you describe it? Burlesque is at its core a version of the theatrical arts. It's much more recently um, identified with the striptease, but at its very core, burlesque is an expression of satire, of comedy, of political intent, of artistic expression. And sometimes there is clothing removal, which is where the art of the tease comes in. But at its very center, burlesque is theater, and it's here to entertain and educate audiences. And a lot of people do think of the movie or, or all of those other sort of mainstream ideas. And, and really, the movie's not that far off. You know, it's we put on shows, we do things that we consider family friendly, where no clothing is removed. And it's, you know, the cabaret style dancing and really choreographed routines. And then, you know, someone comes out dressed like a giant egg. And- <laughs> 
it's pandemonium. (laughs) The beauty of the art is that it can really be whatever you want it to be as an artist. There is no box to fit in. The only rule is that you step outside the box, you know? And Will, you're going to be one of the people entertaining at a Queer Days night this weekend. You're going to be presenting Gay History for Straight People, which won a Broadway World Cabaret Award for Best Spoken Word last year. How did you come up with this TED Talk style show? It started with when the character was first developed. The character I play is Leola, who's a 72-year-old redneck who is <laughs> on a mission to save the world one audience at a time by preaching the gospel according to Kelly Clarkson, who she believes is the second coming. She says that they're not shows and they're not sermons, they're Shermans, because it's, you know, a good sermon from the pulpit combined with jokes and dance numbers and things like that. But each one of the the shows have been sort of like this demented kind of TED talk done with a PowerPoint presentation to educate audiences on whatever the topic was. And so a couple of years ago for Pride, I was trying to come up with something that would be relevant. And the idea of having Leola sort of stumble through the A to Z of the gay alphabet, her version of gay history could be a lot of fun. But it was also, it was right around the, so it must have been 2019, because it was around the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Revolution. And I knew that that was going to be S in the alphabet, and that T would be the trans community, which was so, such a huge part of the gay rights movement still is, but but especially there at what's considered sort of the birth of the modern gay rights movement. So I had S and T and then I just had to fill in everything else. And the disclaimer is that it's not an accurate capture of gay history, <laughs> but it's it's a lot of fun. And there is, you know, one of the things that I love is that people are entertained and laugh and everything, but there are moments during the show going through the alphabet where people are actually learning things and then, you know, are moved. Right. Because that's usually when people learn the most is when they're laughing and they're being entertained during something, they kind of retain that knowledge of something new. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing about the PowerPoint, which, you know, I was doing them for work anyway. So I thought, oh, I wonder if I could use this in the show, but her version of it, which wouldn't be great. And is the visual to always have that sort of visual punchline to something helps sort of secure the laugh, if you will, or, or reemphasize it. And so how did you come up with this drag alter ego, Leola Ladyland? I am from Atlanta, but most of my, my mom's side of the family is from Waycross, Georgia. The idea, Leola was a relative of mine, a great aunt of mine, who was not quite as friendly as the Leola that I play. <laughs> who is really a a version of my mom, except for the whole lesbian thing. But the idea was I had a great uncle of mine who was a priest. And when he retired from the priesthood at the age of 65, he came out and I was the first person in the family that he came out to. And I had been fascinated as a writer and artist about this idea of coming out that late in life, coming out in a profession where your celibate because I always associated even as someone who had my own coming out experience you know like well if you're coming out of the closet that's because you're interested in you know having sexual relationships with the opposite sex or whatever but here was somebody who had taken this vow of celibacy 
who still felt the need, you know, at the age 65 plus to come out. So the premise of Leola was, and it started when I was doing sketch comedy in New York City, having just moved to the city, was this idea of a woman who is 70, who just keeps coming out at random moments in her life. She's 72 today, and she still lives with her ex-husband, best friend, Gus. They were married for 42 years, and they share a double-wide trailer on the Okefenokee Swamp, just outside of Waycross, and they both work at the Piggly Wiggly together. She's the manager of the deli, and he's in charge of aisle cleanup, so they're kind of a power couple in Waycross, and she's figured out a way to have her best friend and also is just oozing with gay pride. She is, everything is rainbows and everything is celebrating, you know, whatever your truth is. So that's also part of why the alphabet of gay history sort of worked because our community has so many letters in it now with the LGBTQIAPD plus. Well, I have to ask, can you give us a sneak preview of some of the alphabet that you touch upon in your show? So as Leola is going through the alphabet, part of her goal is to not just be educational and learning about gay history, but also her own sort of public service announcement. So O is for ointment, because if you're gay, you're probably going to get a rash and you're going to need something to take care of that rash. So you're going to need an ointment. If you don't have quality health insurance, you can always make a salve. There's a recipe on her website which it's really just some mayonnaise and a little uh, a little gasoline. You mix that up and put it right on there and it'll take that away. That is awesome. <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. So going back to Metropolitan Studios, Amy, I know that you're not a burlesque dancer, but you are the digital content producer for Metropolitan Studios. What sparked your interest to join them? I'd started going to some burlesque shows a few years ago and just sort of became immersed in the community. And then when Metropolitan Studios sort of came into my sphere of awareness, at the time I was running Dykes on Bikes in Atlanta and I needed a place to start to hold meetings and potentially run some events. Um, So it was kind of a mix of social interaction and also a need for a space to go that supported a small queer woman-owned business, which is really important to me. And I've just been involved ever since. It's a really amazing space to be, regardless of whether or not you're a performer. They just have created this whole atmosphere that I'm in love with. And it's it's a pretty great space. You said Dykes on Bikes. Mm -hmm. What is that? Dykes on Bikes is a, a women's motorcycle contingent. And if you've been to a parade parade that has a chapter, then you've seen them. They're the motorcycle group that that rides out in front of the parade. And essentially, we like to joke that we're the bouncers of pride. Right? They, <laughs> they like lead the parade out and, and sort of kick off the pride parade. And, and the group came to be in the 70s, just a few years after Stonewall. The story goes that in San Francisco, I think it was in 74, um, a group of women showed up at one of the gay liberation actions in the city on their motorcycles and somebody from the press nicknamed them Dykes on Bikes. And it was really more of just a social group. Um, and over the years it grew and it's a 501c3. The home base is in, in San Francisco. Um, and then there are chapters 
internationally. So they do a lot of community fundraising and work, and it's it's more than just being in the parade and looking, you know, hot on your motorcycle. So it's a terrific group. Yeah. Is this where your nickname Vava Vroom came from? Yes. Yep. Both of you, Rebecca and Will, have stage alter ego names. How does someone come up with their own stage persona? It's probably pretty much the same for anyone, right? It's about something that speaks to you. Um, my stage name is Rula Roulette. For me, it was, I, I really love alliteration. And I wanted to walk into the burlesque community and not get pigeonholed into a specific type of performance. Because for me, burlesque is really just theater on my own time. I am a theater professional. That's what my degree is in. But I don't necessarily have the time to go do what somebody else wants me to do all the time. So burlesque was really theater for myself. And what I really wanted was a name that didn't say, oh, they only ever performed this kind of thing. I wanted to have a name that you really didn't really ever know what you were going to get. Am I going to come out and be like this super sensual glamazon? Or am I going to come out covered in cats and roll around in a baby pool full of milk? Like you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was where roulette came from. And Rula is, again, there's the alliterative part of it, but it also means like rebellious daughter which <laughs> speaks to me in so many ways. So, so you know, and, and we coach students through how to look for their alter egos. It's really important to do Googling and make sure that nobody else has your alter ego that you have in mind. It's important to really see how you identify with that character, especially if you're going to build it out. Like, for example, Will's character is so fleshed out and has an entire lifetime backstory about who they are as an individual you know, we have a lot of those conversations with new burlesque performers. Like, did you Google it? Does anybody else have it? What does it mean to you? How do you connect with it? Because, you know, you're going to be this for the foreseeable future and you have to be able to connect with it years down the road. It needs to be evergreen in a lot of ways. Right. So a lot of times people come into burlesque specifically and they, they kind of have an idea of what they want, or it comes from something that they love or a name that meant something to them or a childhood nickname. But for us, you know, having an alter ego for a lot of us is really important because we have people who are teachers or who, you know, work in much more conservative professions and they need an extra layer of kind of security for themselves, which I don't necessarily think is always something that occurs in like the traditional theatrical world. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. So in regards to this weekend's events, we already spoke about the gay history for straight people with Leola, but there's also going to be a big queer cabaret and a queer arts panel discussion. Rebecca, can you tell us about what some of the musical numbers the burlesque dancers will be performing to? Absolutely. So the name of the show is A Big Queer Cabaret, and it's Friday night and it's Saturday night. And it's truly a variety show. So we have drag kings, drag queens. We've got a fire performer. We have a group performance from the Atlanta School Burlesque, and we have a spoken word artist. So it's truly a variety show. And I can say there's going to be a little bit of Prince in there. There's going to be a little bit of emo in there. There's going to be a little bit of politics in there. Uh, But at the end of the day, we hope to edutain you, right? We hope to entertain and educate you all in one sitting. (laughs) So that's, that's kind of what you can expect with a big queer cabaret. Gotcha. That could be the E in Will's setup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot of education happening this weekend (laughs) in the most, the most entertaining way possible. It sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And more of the education is Colorful, a queer arts panel, which Amy, you're curating. Can you talk about some of the topics that you guys will be discussing? Um, Certainly. So I love a good panel. Um, (laughs) I I love to hear 
people's stories. And so pulling this together around queer performers, so the cabaret and, and what Will's doing, you know, we're really going to be talking about the intersection of orientation and the arts and how arts have shaped LGBTQ rights over the years. A little bit about each person's history and just it's more of a conversation than anything. And uh, I think it's going to be pretty great. We have spoken word artists, Will is on the panel. We have one of the performers from the cabaret, Rula Roulette is also on the panel. And then we have Art Addict, who is a, a muralist in Atlanta. And then they do so much more than that. But I'm just going to summarize by saying muralist. Rebecca, lastly, can you tell us about the drag story time with Brent Starr? So we're going to be doing the drag story time at two o'clock on Saturday. And that is a virtual event. It can be accessed through the Atlanta Fringe Festival's Facebook. Uh, They're going to do a Facebook Live. And Brent's actually going to be at Metropolitan Studios reading to the kiddos. Uh, He's got, you know, two or three books that he's going to read. He's going to be there in full drag. We're going to have a great time. And it's, it's super great family fun entertainment because it's really important as a, you know, a queer individual and as someone who, you know, believes in celebrating who we are, that we don't limit our children from having some kind of some kind of role in these events in pride and in general, because they're going to be the next generation of young adults out there celebrating pride and, and giving them space to, to see what, you know, our community looks like outside of, you know, television and to see local people is, is really important. Metropolitan Studios CEO, Rebecca Beasley and performers, Amy Furzoko and Will Nolan. A Queer Day's Night takes place Friday and Saturday. More information about the lineup is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we listen back to my conversation with Atlanta artist and humanitarian Daniel Troppy. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta artist Daniel Troppi is trying to amplify the voices of people living on our streets. Using his 35mm camera, Troppi photographs those in need of housing while he delivers food, clothing, tents, and other essentials. When Troppi spoke with me last summer, he started our conversation explaining 
why he began photographing the homeless. I took several photography classes when I started. My background is painting, so I literally was a painter for all of my life and then gave it up and got rid of my art supplies, picked up a camera, took classes, and immediately after taking classes, you really need to get a subject matter. As a photographer, what do you want to focus on? What do you really... And I have always loved people, and I like talking to people. I love hearing their stories, and it was a no-brainer for me. I really just picked it up and started uh, focusing on people. I think the people that really intrigue me the most are people who are dealing with homelessness because... I, in my opinion, you really have to be a strong person to live on the streets. If you're weak and you're meek, it's a very tough place to be. And that intrigued me. And I, I was interested in researching that. And, and I just started photographing people, you know, asking them if I could photograph them and listen to their stories. And that's really how it started. I can imagine that taking pictures of people in such a vulnerable state must be difficult for them and sometimes may feel intrusive. How do you walk that line between showing homeless people and yet not exploiting them? You have to do it with a lot of integrity and dignity. That's how you have to approach it. And a lot of the subject matter, I have built up a relationship with them. I have, they have seen me around. I've handed supplies to them and, and got to know them. And I always ask for permission. And, you know, before I asked anybody if I could photograph them, I asked them if they would, you know, mind sharing a little bit of their story with me. And that kind of breaks the ice. And then I'll ask them, I mean, do you mind if I photograph them? And I've actually had people tell me, you're the first person that actually asked for permission. And that was stunning. I think you have to do it with a lot of integrity. And I, you know, for me, it's, it's asking and it's gaining their trust and it's, it's building that relationship with people. Many of your subjects are smiling or seem at ease in your pictures. How do you approach them in order to make them feel comfortable enough to be in front of the camera? You know, not every baddie will want to be photographed. And I totally understand that and I get that. And um, But for the ones that do, I think are in some way honored and proud and pleased to participate in this, you know, and I want people to be heard. I want them to be seen. I want to bring them in from what people have for so long, put them in little boxes and put them away. They're not in a box anymore. They're out in public. They're all around us. They're in every zip code in every neighborhood in our country. So I am inviting them in to announce to their neighborhood, their, their city, their, the world, who they are. 
and they I give I I, I really feel like I'm, I want to give them that opportunity to be presented in a way that they want to be presented that they choose to be presented not how people manufacture or whatever a story or whatever I want them to tell me the story in fact your photography of the homeless led you to launch your nonprofit called Yimby Georgia. Can you tell us what Yimby stands for? Yes, yeah. Yimby is an acronym, so it stands for Yes in My Backyard. Yes in My Backyard. I believe, like a lot of people, that uh, homelessness is truly in all of our backyards. It's in all of our neighborhoods. Again, it's in every zip code and area code. And that's why the name EMB, Georgia, Yes in My Backyard, really resonated with the nonprofit that I, that, you know, I launched it, uh, launched in mid-February, right before this pandemic. <laughs> wow. What does the organization do? We our mission is to engage, encourage, get people uh, excited or interested in how they can help homelessness in their neighborhoods. It can be if you're in uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, the heartlands of America, the, the southern borders of Texas, wherever you live when you're dealing with homelessness, we try to provide a template and they see me leading by example. But our mission is to get people excited about how they can participate and help with homelessness where they see it, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. But it, it, it really is to encourage other people to start maybe a group. If I have a wonderful story. I was helping a veteran not too long ago. Uh, at, he, he was standing outside the restaurant. I was walking in. He asked me for help. I said, come in. He, we, he asked me for a meal. And I said, yeah, I'll buy you a meal. Come in. And he came in. And as we were getting our food and, and we were talking, and he's a veteran and he's in his early 40s. So I took the photographs and I, I gave him a backpack. I gave him any supplies that I had in my car and handed it to him and, and wrote down a little story and I posted it on my Facebook page or Yimby uh, Facebook page. And the next day or two, I got an email or a message from a woman who is in the military, stationed in one of the uh, Caribbean islands. And she said, thank you for helping a fellow veteran. But I wanted to tell you that you have inspired me to create a little version here on the island. And Lois, that to me was like winning the lottery. And I've had more people that have started to let me know what they're doing in their neighborhoods, that they see that, you know, me giving you know, hygiene kits away, backpacks, sleeping bags, whatever we give away. We give away so many things. But they see me doing that, and they're doing that in their neighborhoods. And that's the mission of Yimby, Georgia. Daniel, you use a 35-millimeter camera. Why not 
digital in this digital age? Oh, Lois, I'm such an, I, you know, I, I still listen to albums like uh, Miles Davis and Lena Horne and, and uh, Peggy Lee on the, my turntable. So I really have always been intrigued and interested in the art of photography. And I always felt like the art of photography was a very un misunderstood art form. I was intrigued by it. And I liked the process of photographing somebody and then having to go into the dark room, which thankfully, you know, I used the dark room at Creative Circus, thanks to the director there, Greg. And there's nothing more magical than going in and pouring the chemicals and putting that paper in and watching that develop in front of you. It's pure magic. And that's really what I was intrigued by. And I know it's not instant because we live in such a world where everything needs to be done yesterday, but I kind of wanted to just make that art form more valid to me. I wanted to validate it on every level. And I think it's funny because when I would take people's, at the very beginning, when I was taking people's portraits, they'd say, well, let me look at it. Let me look at it. And I'd turn the camera around and they were like, what? And I'm like, this is not digital. I mean, I've got to go into the dark room. I've got to process the roll of film, the negatives, and then I've got to take those negatives and then go into the dark room, put them in the enlarger. And step by step by step, you have the print. And they're like, oh my God, you are old school. I heard that so many times. You are old school. I said, I am old school. I still listen to music on the turntable. <laughs> you are not <laughs> alone with that. Daniel, what stereotypes about homelessness do you hope to dismantle through your work and your photography? Oh, Lois, thank you for asking that. Oh, I, I really, I mean, thank you. That's a very powerful question. And today I've met people who became homeless that were accountants. They were restaurant managers. A one woman who lived in her car that has a PhD. I've met all walks of life that were homeless, that are homeless. Uh, I've met and talked to people who were nurses, worked in the healthcare profession, that something tragic happened in their lives. You know, they, they missed a check or some illness happened or a divorce happened. Anything, anything can happen today, anything. And really there's so many more people in our country and in our world that are one, two paychecks away from really living in a tent. And that's startling. What is the next goal for Yimby or the next step? We have four goals that we want to focus on for Yimby, Georgia, and they're all very important. One of them is doing shower and laundry trucks, getting shower and laundry trucks out there hitting the streets and, and providing a good clean shower and letting them do their laundry. Then the other one is a food truck. I wanna work with local chefs and uh, food banks to get food out to the food desert people, not just for the homeless people, but for the elderly, the handicapped, the people who can use a good, hot, healthy meal. The third one is 
uh, tiny home communities. I want to build, do tiny home communities in all parts of, the, uh, of Atlanta. And the fourth one, and I think it's the most important one, is to open up thrift stores. Not just to get our message out about our nonprofit, but say, for instance, you are homeless and you come into the thrift store and you need not only clothing, but a tent or whatever. We'll give you all that. We'll take care of you. But you need glasses or you need uh, dental care, or you need to get housing. We're gonna have social workers in the back of our thrift store providing services from the time we're open to the time we're closed. So when you come in, we're gonna help you and get you the supplies you need to make your life a little easier, but we're also going to connect you with social workers that can help you beyond today. And that's what's so powerful. We need, you know, to get those uh, ambitious goals set or met, we need a great deal of sponsorships. We need corporate sponsorships. We need people that will see what we're doing and climb on board and say, let's get those food trucks out. Let's get those laundry trucks out there. Let's do those tiny home communities. I love the idea that the thrift stores, Daniel, I want them in every community in Atlanta. Atlanta artist Daniel Troppy. You can view his photos on Instagram, on Instagram, and his handle is at Daniel Troppy. More information about his nonprofit, Yimby, Georgia, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Underground Atlanta has gone through many transformations since the early buildings comprising the area appeared during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. What became Underground Atlanta's retail concourse initially was enjoyed by the public during Prohibition as a place for basement speakeasies, even referenced by blues singer Bessie Smith in Preaching the Blues. After recent years of neglect, Underground Atlanta is transforming yet again, with art at the top of the priority list. Underground's creative director, Chris Pilcher, joins us now via Zoom. Chris, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. I'm very happy to be here today. When and why did you become involved with Underground Atlanta? So I became involved in March of this year. Discussion started in November of 2020. I am a creative technology and installation artist, and I've been involved in South Downtown for quite a long time in the creative community here. Um, So when the opportunity arose to help transition Underground Atlanta into a new arts and entertainment district, I absolutely had to jump on it. Hmm. How would you describe the state of Underground Atlanta when you first became creative director? Underground was in a a very dilapidated state when our company, Lalani Ventures, took over the property. It was 
being ready to basically be demolished and turned into student housing and some big block retail. A lot of the storefronts had been stripped of their former glory. They were empty. It took us a month just to clean up the dust off the ground. Oh, wow. Well, talk us through the coming changes, if you will. Where underground is now, what the vision is for, say, this time next year and even five years from now? Well, our long-term development plans are, are in the works, but what we are doing is bringing Underground Atlanta back to life now. And we have a collection of art and entertainment programs that are beginning to activate the spaces with new energy and creativity. And one of the most important things is people. We're getting people back to the center of the city, the most historic district in Atlanta. So in just a few months, we've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and we've worked with more than 60 artists and small entrepreneurs. And we've been reimagining the walls, the uh, old wooden kiosks, the storefronts, and these other forlorn spaces around the property into a new vibrant, inviting place for people to come together. So next year, what might we see that's different from now? We're working on a number of initiatives. By next year, we will have a boutique food market. Demolition work is already finished, and we're actually in the middle of construction for this. So we'll have a 28,000-square-foot boutique food market. It will have 21 different vendors in this mix of local and international fare. We're repositioning our music venues and giving them the resources they need to be ultra-successful. So we currently have the Masquerade and Future, Uh, show bar, which is a two-story LGBTQ restaurant in this sort of cabaret. In addition to that, we have a new amphitheater that's coming into place. We hope that by next year, Underground Atlanta will be almost unrecognizable from the state that it's in now. Wow. And then there is the task of making people aware of it and attracting folks to downtown, which has not been easy in recent decades for Atlanta. How do you plan to tackle those issues? Well, you know, that's the most important thing is to get life and energy and people and community back to underground in the surrounding areas. There are a number of different development projects that are in the works around us, including like the South Downtown District with Newport, the redevelopment that's happening in the Gulch with Centennial Yards, All of these things are going to bring a new population and a new group of residents here, but there are already people in this community. There are 60,000 students who visit Georgia State. There are almost 30,000 office workers that populate downtown during the week. And what we are doing is putting a number of different programs, interesting programs in place that make people want to come check this out. So we have things like our underground creative carts collective which is this sort of interactive event where we've given artists our old wooden kiosks and they've transformed these into mobile art galleries and spaces for creation and selling food and beverage we have live music we've reopened our underground tours uh, so we do a history tour every two weeks um, that's free and open to the public Uh, we do accept donations and all of this we put into homeless initiatives around town And in addition to that, we recently opened a over 30,000 square foot exhibition space, uh, which is currently hosting this Art of Banksy exhibit, but 
we already have the next exhibitions planned out for the future that will open in March. Beginning this month, Underground Atlanta offered rent-free space to pop-ups for four months. How is it going for them? So the Underground Roots pop-up program is going extremely well. We initially were going to give space to six different artists and entrepreneurs, but we had such an overwhelming response, like over 300 entries, that it was very difficult for us to narrow it down. So we actually have brought 70 up and coming entrepreneurs into this program. We've completely reopened Lower Alabama Street, which has been closed for quite some time, going on nearly five years now. And you'll find all of our kiosks are alive with entrepreneurs selling various wares. We have a small food and beverage program. And these entrepreneurs and the artists that are in the storefront spaces have been extremely successful over the last month. So we are making plans for extending this program into the future. Oh, that's great. You mentioned plans for more large-scale art exhibitions beginning in March. What are some of those shows that you have lined up? Well, I can't give away all of the details because we really want to surprise Atlanta with what we're going to bring to the table. But some of the things that we have coming in the near future, uh, we are hosting the Elevate Atlanta Public Art Festival, October 8th through the 10th. And that will feature over 20 local artists who are taking over some other areas of the property. We have two different immersive theater experiences, one which will take place during the Christmas season and one that happens from January through March. The details of that are still a little bit under wraps, but we will be releasing that soon. And I can say that our next large exhibition coming in March will feature some internationally renowned artists, and it's going to be intergalactic. Oh, my goodness. E.T. coming in for this? Lois, you're so close. You're so close. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I can give you a little bit of details um, since this is City Lights. We are working with a number of different artists to create a space-themed exhibition um, that will take place in this 30,000 square foot exhibition space. And we are working out possible collaborations with the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, known as SETI there will be a little bit of extraterrestrial life around the property. Wow, this is intriguing, Chris. Underground has gone through so many phases in its history, from bustling use, unfortunately, to being considered a place to avoid for many downtown visitors in recent years. But in its thriving times, was it ever known as a place to find art and artists? Well, Underground Atlanta has always had sort of a creative base. Even when it was reestablished in the 90s, it was considered a special entertainment district by the city. In the early 2000s, there was a bustling nightlife district here. One thing I've found while being on the property and researching the history is this intersection at Prior Street, which is what's known now as Lower Prior Street and Lower Alabama, uh, was previously known as Humbug Square. And it had snake oil salesmen and street performers. There was a gentleman with a trained bear oh. that would bring it out every weekend. And then, of course, you know, your local pickpockets and things like that also hung out in that area. 
but it's since it was established in the early 1800s, this area has been known for hosting creatives and being like the center of culture for downtown. And we hope to bring it back to that those sort of glory days with less pickpockets in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Chris, you are an accomplished visual artist yourself. Do you have any contributions in the way of original art that have been shown in underground since its renovations and reopening began? Well, personally, I've been very invested in trying to create opportunities for other artists in this space and to also help ownership understand how important art and culture can be to reestablishing a long abandoned space. But I have an art studio here at Underground. Uh, I've set up a virtual reality lab, and I'm also planning on collaborating with artists in the near future to do some things here at Underground. Actually, the way I got involved, I had a projection mapped installation for the Prism Winter Lights Festival at Woodruff Park in November and December of 2020 on the International Peace Fountain Wall. The owner, uh, Chanel Lalani of Underground, was aware of it. And we began conversations then about um, doing some temporary installations here at Underground. And after a few months, that turned into Lalani Ventures bringing me on as the creative director. Ah, the Underground website states that the vision is for a sustainable community. Would you talk about the sustainable aspect? How does Underground Atlanta hope to have a positive impact in sustainability? We're currently working with a master planner to put a lot of initiatives in motion for the next decade. And some of the things that we are looking at are uh, sustainable energy, such as solar power. We have hired a local landscaper to introduce native species. We're going to work on an urban gardening program. We're bringing in electric car chargers. Uh, We're encouraging multimodal transportation. Uh, We'll soon start up a big recycling program. And some of our future developments in downtown are going to include sustainability from the very beginning. So we're not having to retrofit. But one of our hopes for underground is to bring it into the 21st century. Chris Pilcher is the creative director for Underground Atlanta. The area is undergoing transformative renovations, and the first of many art strolls will take place Thursday, October 14th from 6 to 11 p.m. Displaying artists include Mike Stasny, George Long, and Crew ATL. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Drawing with chalk on the sidewalk or driveway is such a nostalgic experience. The Chalktoberfest takes that fun activity to a completely new level. The Marietta Cobb Museum of Art is combining the annual Chalk Art Festival with the Craft Beer Festival to create a fun event for the entire family. On Sunday, there will be a community chalk competition with the opportunity to win prizes. 
all weekend there will be live entertainment and professional chalk artists creating large works of art on the streets of Marietta. More information about Saturday and Sunday's events can be found on their website, chalktoberfest.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian and former Senator Al Franken joins me to talk about comedy, politics, and the spectacular joy of being a grandparent. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.